Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. All right, we are starting a new series this morning. And uh, it's, we're, we're going to be dealing with some issues that uh, are complex and sensitive. Matter of fact, uh, I thought about sending out an email just to warn you, uh, but I'm, I'll be discreet, I'll be gentle, but we're going to be talking about a, an issue that's very complex, so we're going to need the grace of God to uh, kind of get through that. So if you guys could throw that, I think uh, Dan made a graphic, if you guys want to throw that up there, so you can see from that video the evolution of pop culture and how the family is presented, and that's what we're going to look at. What happened to bring us to this strange new world? Now, the reason we're calling it Strange New World is I am shamelessly stealing the title from the book of the month that I'm really encouraging you to get a hold of. Uh, Carl Truman is a professor, theologian, and uh, brilliant, all-around brilliant dude. And he wrote an initial book that was about a 450-page book for academics and uh, some of his fellow academics encouraged him to make, put out a more concise one for the layman, which is Strange New World. Uh, the, the other one is, I want to say it was the triumph of the individualized self. Both of them are worth you getting into. And uh, he proposes this question, and I think this would be a good jumping off point for you and I. He says that there was a, a generation ago, if, or if our grandparents, if one of our Grandparents were had to walk into a doctor's office and said, I am a man stuck, I'm a woman stuck in a man's body. The doctor would have said, this is a problem. And so we're going to send you to a counselor to align your mind with your body. Today, if that were to happen, the doctor would still agree, this is a problem. But now he would say, we're going to send you to a surgeon to align your body with your mind. And that is a seismic shift. That is not a small thing. And it's indicative of the wider culture. Something has happened in our world, and you and I need to understand it. If we're to engage people, then we need to understand how we got here as a culture, as society. The Western world has gone through a huge metamorphosis. And so we want to understand, how did we get here philosophically? And perhaps there are people here this morning that you think, yeah, well, I'm in the latter group. I would would agree with that doctor. Well, then, I'm glad you're here. Hear me out. And we're going to do a study on history, philosophy, and theology. And we're going to go through some, uh, what I would call, uh, philosoph- we're going to look at some philosophical junctures in, in Western history. There are certain points in Western history, junctures, where ideas are introduced, they gain traction, and it pivots all of society. And there are a number of ideas that have pivoted Western culture. Western culture has been the source of the greatest, tra- uh, greatest prosperity and freedom humanity has ever known. But Western culture is in danger of being lost. It's been hijacked. Now, inevitably, we're going to get a little political in this, uh, this series. because, And really, I'm just going to borrow from Carl Truman's outline in his book. And uh, in the foreword of the book, there's another guy commenting. And he, he concisely breaks it down like this. 
He said, what we're going to look at is how the self was redefined, how the, how the idea of the selfhood of man was redefined, how that self was then sexualized, and then how sex was politicized. And it's brought us to this point. And there are philosophical junctures for each one of those turns in Western society. And we need to understand what they are so that, number one, we can engage, and number two, we can confront the complicity in our own souls. Let me say it again. We need to confront the areas in which we are complicit to the problem. Because in a very real sense, uh, well, let, let me just, we'll just do a quick overview. The redefining of the self you can really, the, the person that is really the figurehead of the self being redefined, and this was several hundred years ago, that was Jean-Jacques Rousseau. One of the men, he was a philosopher, a French philosopher that really was influential in the French Revolution and was a contemporary of some of our founding fathers. And so out of the, that hour of human history, there was, uh, there, it was a very tumultuous time in human history, and out of that came the French Revolution, and the American Revolution. Now, some of you perhaps uh, have gone through Francis Schaeffer's book, How Shall We Then Live? It's an old book, but it's a very relevant book. Uh, he came out with a uh, video series on that. I happen to have, I, honest to God, I have the VHS tapes of that. So that tells you how old it is. And uh, I just sold my van that had a VHS player, and I could have watched it going down the road. But it's uh, so. But I, I haven't thrown away because they're so valuable. Now you can just get them on YouTube. But he talks about in one of the scenes in this series, he does something very interesting. He stands up and he lays out some pictures of some influential people. And if I remember right, it's been probably twenty years since I watched them. One of the people that he laid up there was Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was a French philosopher. And then you had Augustine, the, the uh, famous ch early church father, who was, I believe, uh, the bishop in, in Africa, of the African church, one of the early church fathers. Uh, these two guys play off of each other. Matter of fact, Rousseau, who lived centuries after Augustine, copied something that Augustine did. Augustine wrote a book called Confessions. And it was one of the, many people look at it as the first autobiography uh, as we know it. It's giving someone a glimpse into the struggles, the internal struggles of his soul. So Augustine wrote this book, Confessions. And it was explaining his struggle with sin and coming out of sin. And he was a very immoral guy that got saved and then become you know, a very influential, brilliant theologian. But he was, he was showing the internal struggle and that struggle was attributed to the fall of man. He understood that he was fallen. So even though he agreed on what the self was in the sense that it gave a glimpse into the internal life. Now, of course, Augustine wasn't the first one. Paul does this in Romans chapter 7. He says, what I want to do, I don't do. I'm struggling. That is, Paul is giving us a picture of what the self was. Matter of fact, in Romans 7, the Greek word he tra that's translated I and self is ego. It's that same idea. David gave us glimpses into his struggle. So this wasn't new. But Augustine took it deeper. He talked about the, all the things he went through and the, the, uh, 
just, just his, his normal human struggles. And it was looked at it as a groundbreaking book. That was Augustine. Well, centuries later, Rousseau would write a book called Confessions. But it was his polemic against Augustine's because Rousseau looked at the human self differently. Augustine understood man is fallen. The problem with man is not some external pressure, but an internal sinfulness. And therefore, man inside needed to be fixed. Therefore, man could not trust himself because his self was fallen and he needed to be redeemed. And therefore, the problem was his nature, not external nurture. It's not, not all the external forces that were placed upon him. It was who he was as a person that needed fixed. Rousseau turned that on its head and Rousseau said, no, Man is at his greatest in his pristine nature. And the real problem is not his nature. It was nurture. It was how he was raised. The real problem is society imposing its rules and traditions upon him. And if man was just able to live just unbridled and to pursue his passions, you would see man at his best. And in actuality, what Francis Schaeffer does in those videos is he shows out of those two philosophies flowed two different worldviews and two different forms of government and two different, I mean, ultimately two different types of country. Out of Augustine's biblical view of man ultimately flowed free democracies and capitalism and a lot of things that are getting a bad rap today. But under that form of government, the world has experienced greater freedom and greater prosperity than the world ever knew prior to that. And it comes directly out of a biblical worldview. Now that's not to say that capitalism doesn't need corrections and so forth, but it was a worldview that produced this. Out of this worldview ultimately came totalitarianism. And we don't have to, we'll, we'll get into that in our final installment, how all of that fits together. But there is a logic that flows from this that will result in that type of worldview. So you can put it this way. Ideas have consequences. And no ideas have greater consequences than theological ideas. And when we don't align our lives with the word, when we don't begin to define important things according to the word, when we sever ourselves from the word and trust our feelings to guide us rather than the objective word of God, then ultimately there are consequences that are suffered. And so really what these two men were dealing with is their anthropology, which is one arm of theology. Augustine had a biblical anthropology that man was created in the image of God and therefore was valuable. But he was fallen and therefore dangerous. And he could be redeemed and therefore had great potential to partner with heaven. That's a biblical anthropology. Man was created in God's image, he fell, but he can be redeemed. Rousseau had a humanistic anthropology. And his was the beginning of a journey away from biblical ethics, a, 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 a journey away from the biblical definition of man. And although it seemed okay at first, that small little turn took man way off. 
So one of the, one of the outflows of this was when Rousseau said that man was in his greatest state, the most pristine state, was when he was when he wasn't being encumbered by the traditions and the requirements of society, if he would just pursue his lusts and his own creativity, then you would see man at his best. What he was doing is he was cutting himself off from all authority. Up, and, up until that time, even though there were people who didn't adhere to biblical theology, of course, there has all been down through history, still man looked externally for some place to anchor his ethics, someplace outside himself to, to establish what was moral and immoral. But Rousseau was the, with the beginning of this where man began to look within to guide himself. Matter of fact, Rousseau was the one who came up with the idea, you've heard this phrase, the noble savage. And you can see this showing up in our entertainment industry. Anybody ever seen Dances with Wolves? How about The Last Samurai? Or Avatar. You ever recognize that's the same movie just with different characters? It really is. I mean, it, it, they sold well. So if you want to make one, just paint someone blue and have a new storyline with it. Same, same thing. But what it was is the idea is that Western capitalistic society with its Judeo-Christian worldview were these morons. Matter of fact, there's a, there's a uh, scene in the one, Dances with Wolves. Kevin Costner is standing before a, a commander and the guy's sitting at his desk and he's, talk, he's going to assign him to go work in, out in the West. The, you know, the untamed West out with the Native Americans. And so he's talking to him and Kevin Costner is already disillusioned with the war and all that's going on. And as he's talking to his commander, his, command, his commander urinates on himself. He just wets his pants. He's just a buffoon. And that is the perfect snapshot of what Western society is portrayed as. And so when, where Kevin Costner finds nobility, where he finds uh, people with integrity, is out in the untamed West, where the noble savage, and that is Rousseauian philosophy. It's a picture of where you're really going to find man at his best is when he's not been encumbered by the morality and the Judeo-Christian worldview of the West. And you see that in all those movies. And so Rousseau's idea has become really rooted in Western culture. And there's been this battle of ideas. We've heard of the culture wars and worldviews and all that. It really does come down to those two philosophies. It's a different view of man. It's a different anthropology. If you don't understand that man is fallen, then man doesn't need redeemed, and man can be trusted. There's a little verse in Matthew 11, and it's reiterated, and I want to say it's Luke 14. It says, wisdom is known by her children, or wisdom is vindicated by her children. It's straight out of the mouth of Jesus. Saying that the, what wisdom produces in the next generation will either validate or discredit what you believe. It may sound really good in the ivory towers of academia, and we can talk theory in here, but let's live that and let's let it be lived for another generation and see how that affects our children. Wisdom is vindicated by her children. And when you look at the, the fruit of this philosophy down through history, 
It is a horrendous philosophy. But the fact is, many of us have bought into that to varying degrees. Now, let me just read you a couple of things here. Because what happened was, and we'll just do an overview this morning. What happened is, Rousseau redefined the self. That self didn't need to be tamed by external requirements. Matter of fact, he was the accountability of self to the external world was severed. Let me read it this way. Just read you some notes. The ancient Greeks had a tremendous language. It's the very its very structure lent itself to accuracy and communication. This is surely one of the primary reasons God recorded the communication of his new covenant in this ancient tongue. But for all its precision, Greek made no distinction between the terms truth and reality. In their minds, they were one and the same. And thinking people would usually agree with that at face value. In the modern age, however, these twin concepts have gone through a divorce. One does not refer to the other. How did this happen? Much of this divorce can be traced to the redefinition of the concept of the self. Historically, the concept of the self is referred to the interior life of an individual, his beliefs and feelings. But this interior world of the self was connected to the exterior world. And in fact, it was accountable to the exterior world. Authority, the source of truth, was outside of man and something he pursued and was to align his interior life with. Any discrepancies between man's interior world of belief and feelings and that of the exterior world he lived in was reconciled by reforming his interior views to align with the external reality. In other words, if I came in and I said, I am a woman stuck in a man's body, my external world would contradict that. And so I aligned my interior world with the external world. Because truth and reality were one and the same. And so I would have gone to a theologian or a counselor and had him counsel me to get my mind on the truth so my mind would agree with external reality. But from Rousseau, that cord, that tether, that tethered the two together began to unravel. And the trans movement of today is perhaps the greatest example that that cord in the minds of many has been utterly severed altogether. They, have, they are two separate things now. Now, that's not to say the historical view of self presented an uninterrupted harmony with the external world. I mean, that's why, that's why we have counselors. That's why we have the word where we have to go in because we understand, like Augustine said, man is fallen and so there's things in my mind. I struggle to align my mind with truth, that my mind is deceived. My feelings desire things that are forbidden. And so I've got to a, get saved, but even then I have to have my internal world sanctified by walking with Jesus. That's what discipleship is all about. But the old view used to be that when I'm struggling, I would choose the word or the external world or some external authority over and above my own feelings. And now what's happened is, for much of our world, that's no longer the case. It's redefined education. 
That's why our, our, in, our academic institutions, that's, that's really part of what's behind this whole idea of a safe space. Because education is no longer teaching people to harness their potential and their passions and bridle them so that they can serve society and take their place in culture. Now it's, we've got to protect you from culture so that your passions can be unleashed and you can be your authentic self. That you are at your best when you are living according to your desires and your beliefs, regardless of whether they line up with the external world. And so this philosophy has redefined education. It used to be where our colleges were the place where you would, you would be challenged to believe. And there was, it was a place of, of debate. And, and, and what's fascinating to me is that the Liberal Democratic Party was one of the uh, cheerleaders of rigorous debate on the college campus. It was the Democratic Party that stood for that kind of free speech. And today that's, that's being killed by the same party. But it's that, I want to tell you something. The liberal, uh, my mom and dad, when I was being raised, my mom and dad were both liberals. They were both Democrats. My grandma, my family came out of real poverty. And so there was just this, this idea that if you are poor, you vote Democrat. And if you are rich, you vote Republican. I mean, that was a way oversimplification. But the fact is a lot of people adhered by that. Matter of fact, I should have put a graph of this up. Let's, let's just do a little breakdown here. I was talking to a guy that works with a lot of legislatures, le legislators a while back, and he was explaining to me, he said, really, Dave, there's, and he works on both sides. I said, there's really three groups within both parties. On the right, yeah, the right, on the right, he said, there's the one closest to the middle, and you're going to say, well, no, that's extreme. No, that's closest to the middle. On the right and on the left are the evangelical the, the, uh, who are the evangelicals who are, by and large, conservative Republicans that are conservative in both their economic views and their moral views, okay? And then you have the Catholic Democrats who are the same. So you have, that's the center. Then you go out here and then you have the uh, more libertarian uh, th there was the center one. I forget what the, on, the on the Republican side. I've got a graph I wrote. I'll, I'll put it up next week. But on the extreme was the libertarians and then the left. And the, the, the part of the, both parties that is growing the quickest are the, the extreme elements of both parties. And both of them tend to be moral relativists. One's conservative economically and one's liberal economically, but they're both tend to not be anchored in the moral code. They don't connect their politics to that. And so what we're seeing is the breaking apart of these parties, and it's going to be the middle that's going to rise out of a new party, and there's going to be a joining of the, the two ends. Because these two ends are not about uh, moral platforms, it's about economic platforms and uh, the end justifies the means. And we'll, we'll look at that more in, in, uh, in the days to come. But what we have here is this, this redefinition of the self that has redefined a lot of things. It's redefined law. Where now, like, like hate crimes. If you kill someone, they're just as dead whether you hated them or not. 
But what we do is because of the internalization, they call it the therapeutic self, because of uh, the, the redefinition of the self that is all internalized, if you do violence to me physically, that's one thing, but if you do violence to me emotionally, that's even a greater crime. And so put me on the college campus and I need a safe place to guard my ideas because you can't do violence to me psychologically by troubling my worldview. And there is a consistency to all of this. Even the, the home with children, you, you're seeing parents that are encouraging their kids as little tiny children saying, we're not gonna tell them whether they're a boy or a girl, they get to choose. Because in that idea, that, that mindset that the most pristine version of that child is someone that's not being encumbered by anybody else's opinion. Let them discover themselves. And so out of this flows some really crazy, crazy things. And we need to ask ourselves as believers how much of this we've bought into. How much of this idea of the noble savage? I, you know, as I've been processing this over the last number of weeks, I've even questioned some of our teaching on identity. We've got to be careful. There is a truth to you discovering who you are. But you have to discover God's design of who you are. Because to the Christian, the biblical worldview, a biblical anthropology, a biblical definition of man, man is created in God's image, but he's fallen. That image has been lost underneath. And discipleship begins with conversion, and then we bring that image back to the forefront so that one day people can look at us and say, what is God like? Hey, look at them. They're living out of God's image. They represent him well. But what that means is that you and I understand that we have to have an external authority. I cannot be led by my feelings. Now, those of you that are my age and older and probably a little younger and have been saved for any time at all, you remember the teachings on not being led by your feelings. I remember when I was in Teen Challenge as an 18-year-old kid, they, and, uh, somebody drew a, uh, I don't, Dick, it might have been you when you taught. It was a, a semi-truck on the whiteboard. And they said, the trailer is your emotions. The engine is your mind. And the steering wheel is your will. It was a steering wheel. And you would think, you choose what you're going to think, and your emotions will follow. And that makes for safe driving. But in actuality, most of us, as fallen human beings, we try to drive backwards down the highway of life. We choose, we follow our feelings, and then we choose to think what that is. You ever tried to drive backwards at a high rate of speed? Have you ever tried to do that with a trailer? Now try to do that with a whole bunch of other people on the highway and see how long you last. It's a very dangerous prospect. But it is a very vivid picture about how a lot of people live. That we're driven by our feelings. Now it used to be that we would talk about this more. 
Some of that is just as we mature, we don't need to be told that as much. But the fact is, this generation that's being raised up, not because they're less mature or they're uh, you know, not, not as smart as us, it's because they, have, they are being raised in a worldview that they need to be reminded, you can't be led by your feelings. I need an external authority that I appeal to, something outside of myself. That's why we have the Bible. And today it is a frightening thing for me to hear, this big old Bible, <laughs> This, it's a frightening thing to hear. When I, I, I've quoted a verse to somebody, a believer, and they'll say, well, I don't agree with that. I'm like, I, 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 what? <laughs> it's not that they didn't agree with my interpretation. I didn't give them my interpretation. I quoted a scripture. Yeah. They're not saying, I disagree with your interpretation. I just disagree with the Bible. Yet they claim to be a believer. And I'm telling you, what that is, is that is the fr fruit of Rousseauian philosophy. That I'm going to trust myself, my feelings. Well, I don't agree with the Bible in that area. I feel, I feel, let me tell you this very lovingly as your pastor. For your sake, I don't care how you feel. Okay? The Bible is the Bible. The Bible, we've got to align ourselves. I'm telling you, I used to be a homeless alcoholic. I was a messed up, demonized young man, okay? When I got saved, that didn't all just go away. I remained messed up for quite some time. But especially in the beginning, I had to have something external, outside of myself, that I could grab onto for truth, to correct me, to align myself with and say, okay, my feelings are over here. I'm gonna attach my mind to some objective, immovable reality. And I had the word. And if I didn't have that, I wouldn't be here today, literally. I'd probably be dead. We need something outside of ourselves. We need an authority. And Rousseauian philosophy has come into the church and people trust their feelings over the word of God. Now you may not be one of those that say, well, I don't agree with the Bible. Maybe you're a little more subtle about it and you don't even realize that you do this. But you'll, you'll agree with the Bible until you're in a fix. And then somebody gives you some biblical advice and you say, well, I don't want to hear that right now. I'm going to tell you, that's the same thing. Because what you're telling yourself is that Bible is irrelevant to what I'm going through. I feel this way. I don't want to hear the word right now. And I'm here to tell you, the Bible is the secret to get out of that. That we've got to align our mind and our emotions will eventually follow. If what you believe isn't truth, what you feel isn't reality. And so we've got to anchor our mind in the truth and our feelings will eventually follow. Sometimes it's quick, sometimes it's not. But if you have a biblical worldview and a biblical anthropology and you realize I am created in God's image so I have tremendous potential, but I am also, I have fallen, I am redeemed, but that redemption is a process and I'm not the completed project. 
So there's still areas of my life I need to be corrected. Let me just dig a little deeper on this for a second. I am concerned, even with the revival stream, that we recognize the event of conversion, but some of us are overlooking the process of conversion. And so therefore, we're laying claim to things prophetically and with declarations that aren't showing up in our life, but we're acting as though they are just by our declarations. It's what you call charismatic bravado. All words and no substance. And there needs to be some humility in our hearts that says, this is what God says, and I believe in declaring those things. My tongue is the rudder of the ship, and I can set the course. As I speak those things, I'm aligning my mind. Sometimes I need to say things out loud. So my, because you know the person that my mind believes the most? Me. It's what got me in the mess I was in before. And I've decided that me is going to side with God. And sometimes I've got to remind the me what God says. So I got to say it out loud. And I set the course. I'm disciple. I'm being transformed by the renewing of my mind. But we've got to, we've got to say those things. We've got to own those things. And if we don't, if we, if we just make these declarations as if it's a reality in our life, and it's not showing up, there's nothing wrong with saying, this is what God says about me. I'm making these declarations over my life. But don't pretend you're living it. Humble yourself and say, God, I want to see this show up. I don't want mere words. I want to see the reality showing up in my life. My kids need the reality to show up in my life. My wife this church, this community needs the reality to be showing up in our lives. And a biblical anthropology says, I am fallen, I need redeemed. And now that I am redeemed, I'm in the process and I'm going to own my stuff. I'm going to own it. When my life is not lining up with the word, I'm going to embrace that and I'm going to say, hey, I'm still in process. And you know what? The pristine me is not the unbridled man of passion over here by Rousseau. I tried that. It almost killed me. I know some of you have heard me tell this story, but I remember as an 18-year-old kid walking the streets of Eldon, Iowa. It was about 3 a.m. and I was drunk and I was so desperate for another drink, but all the, the bars were closed and I was walking down the road and I saw a can next to the curb someone had thrown out of their car. It was a can of Budweiser. I picked it up and shook it and there was a little spit left in it and I slammed it down. And it was like all of a sudden, it was out of John, or Luke rather 15, where the prodigal son and he came to himself. And I thought, what has happened to me? I was raised better than this. I was raised in a godly home. What in the world am I doing? I mean, I thought that bottle this morning was bad. <laughs> Not near as bad as the one in the curb. That was the man of unbridled passions. And our salvation, our growth, us becoming the best us and all that he intended only happens when we're harnessed by the biblical truth I'm made in God's image, but I obscured that image, and Jesus redeemed that image, but I'm in a process of him shining the coin upon which that image is. 
And I got to say, Jesus, spend me well. And times I want to spend myself on other things, I need to submit to him. If we don't have an external authority, the modern self has been severed from every external authority. The family, the parents have no more authority. I watched a video this week, some of you saw it, where a spokesman from a children's hospital was gleefully informing the audience how easy it is to remove the reproductive organs of a little girl to make her a boy. A children's hospital. Severed from all reality. What we need to understand is there, are, there is a logic that got them there. We say, that's irrational. No, it's not. There is a rationale. It's a very faulty one, but there's a rationale that led them one step to another to finally sever the cord between the internal world of feelings and the external world of reality. And that thing needs to be joined back together. As believers, one of the primary outflows of that is we understand, I don't trust my feelings. My feelings are a wonderful servant but a terrible master. And I submit them to the master, Jesus, and his word. And as I'm, allow, as I, I'm willing to be instructed by the word, when I'm going through something, I need people to come in and speak into my life. I need people to bring me back to the word. I believe in Christian counselors, Christian therapists, theologians. I believe in, in godly counsel and people that are discipling. We need that in our life. There are times I need somebody outside of myself. I can counsel you. I've been counseling for many years. I'm a decent counselor. I can, I can do that. But then I get in my own situation. I'm like, I can't see the top from the bottom. I get lost. There are times where I literally I'll have to think, what would I tell someone? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Duh. But I can't see it because I'm in my own little world. We all need people outside of ourselves. And if you don't ever have someone you're going to with your stuff, I'm going to tell you, again, I love you, but you're a mess. I guarantee you, if you are not allowing somebody else to speak in to the internal life in your head and your emotions, then you are a mess. Because nobody can navigate that mess alone. We are fallen. We are redeemed. But it's a process of unraveling this stuff. And we need people to be speaking into our life. We used to talk about how everybody needs a, a, a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy. You need people that you go to for counsel. You need people you're running with that are your equals. And you need people you're investing in. And if you don't have all three of those happening in your life, something in your life is going to be left undeveloped. There are muscles you will work out with this that you won't work out with this relationship. And there's muscles that you're going to get in this relationship that you're not going to get in the other two. And every one of us, if we would step back and evaluate, our stuff, our unfinished business shows up primarily in one and maybe two of those. Most of us are good at one and we gravitate towards that one relationship. But there's, there's an area of our life that's showing up. It's manifesting in that relationship and that's where we need to be working on. And we need other people in our life that are godly and speaking into us. 
The old view, we'd go to the theologian and say, tell me what the word says so I can align my interior world with the external world. Now we go to a therapist that says, you tell me what you feel and who you are and we'll send you to someone to align the external world with your interior world. See, the problem is when you sever yourself from all authority, ultimately the seat of authority is now within you and you sit on it. You become your own God. You define who you are. Nobody gets to redefine you. No one gets to give you any feedback lest they injure your therapeutic self. So you get to define who you are. You are the God of your world. The problem with that is all your friends believe the same lie. And it works fine when you are by yourself, but when you get with someone else, the two gods' worlds collide. And inevitably, there's conflict. We were never meant to be able to handle the stress of being the God of our own world. There's a humility that is demanded of us as human beings to bend our neck and say, God, I need, I need authority from the outside to shape me, to discipline me, to tell me where I'm wrong and validate where I'm right so I can grow up into who you've called me to be. Let me just reiterate this I, more concisely what I just said. In the modern view of the self, the seat of authority has moved from the external world to the internal self of feeling and resulting beliefs. Whereas psychology once served to align the mind with biology and the external world, now biology must acquiesce to the psychology and one's interior world. Whereas the answer to general, gender dysphoria was once counseling to align the mind, in the modern view it's now surgery to align the body. The nature of man. Over the last few hundred years, the tether which connected man's interior and exterior worlds has been unraveling. The mainstreaming of the trans movement is the clearest example. This connection is finally and completely severed within the mind of many in the Western world. This issue, that of transsexuality, and especially as it relates to our children, let me just say this, that my heart absolutely breaks for people that struggle with gender confusion. That is, it is not a small thing, it is not a trite thing, and it's certainly not something we should mock. It is, that is a horrendously painful thing that God can heal if we own our fallenness and set it before the Lord. And one of the dangers is those of us that still adhere to a Christian worldview, we look at that and we say, this is so irrational, forgetting that there is a rationale behind it. It's not irrational, it's a bad rationale. But they have found themselves there and we can, out of frustration and being insulated from that, we can just mock it and laugh it off. And that's the last thing those people need. They need compassionate Christians who relate with them based on their humanness and not their redefined gender identity. You see, what happened is Rousseau redefined the self. And we're going to talk about this after David Wagner. Freud sexualized the self. Freud's been largely debunked. But Freud 
accomplished this in the Western mind. The self is now thoroughly sexualized. Freud believed every desire, every impulse in man from childhood on was sexual in nature. Freud was a pervert. Freud needed inner healing and he didn't get it, okay? And most of his theories have been debunked, but that one has taken root. And so whereas the self was redefined and we get to define who we are and anybody tampering with my self-defined selfhood is doing violence to me. You're oppressing me. Freud added the sexual dimension to it. And we've bought into this lie that sex is the primary element of man's identity. Let me say it again. We, as the church, have largely bought into the lie that our sexuality is the primary facet of our identity. And there has been a complicity in the church that we fed that thing and the sexual drive of man has been given permission to be way overblown in what God intended, even in the church. This, we, we've bought into this lie that if a man is not fulfilled sexually, then he can never be fulfilled. I was talking to Faith Swanson, our worship leader up here, and uh, I just love that girl. She, uh, I was talking to her about her dating life. She, she had been dating a guy and they weren't dating anymore. And, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. And she said, pastor. She said, I'd like to be married some. I asked her permission to say this. She said, I'd like to be married someday. She said, but if I never do, it's not like I'm going to live an inferior life. I'm living a very fulfilled life. Man, I, I, that so impressed me. That is healthy. Not hanging your hopes. Oh, I've got to be married. And I've, if I'm not sexually fulfilled within a marriage, I can never be fulfilled. Now, that's a wonderful gift. But my life is not reduced to my sex life. I just saw a video, and some of you will know who I'm talking about. I won't say his name. But a very, very well-known young minister. I, he's probably in his early 30s. Pastors a church of some seven, 8,000 people. In his early 30s, he's been pastoring it for many years. It was his dad's church. And there was a video of him speaking to his wife. Uh, they were doing a video teaching for their congregation. And, uh, and this is what he said. And I'll try to be discreet for the kids in the room. But he was saying, he said, and then this guy is very, uh, very popular, very influential. And he's a Pentecostal. He said, yeah, he said, when I'm traveling, I masturbate. He said, my wife isn't with me. What else am I supposed to do? I just think of her. I was shocked. Because the unspoken message he's insinuating with that statement is that, well, I can't do without. Of course I do. Because if, I, if I'm not fulfilled there, I'll go off the rails. I, I'm not being a fulfilled individual. What does he tell the young men in his congregation? I've heard people tell, say this. Well, just think, think about your future wife. Well, who is she? I don't know. Just don't put a face on her. You know what that's called? Pornography. This faceless person that you use for your jollies. And this lie that says our, our, our desires are so 
Number one, I get to define what's right and wrong. And my desires are so strong because I'm this Freudian individual that every impulse is sexual and I have to appease them is a lie from the pit of hell. That a man can live morally pure. A woman can live morally pure and fulfilled. Sex is a wonderful gift within marriage. You've heard the old adage, it's, it's, it's like fire. It'll keep you warm, <laughs> heat things up. It's wonderful when you keep it in the fireplace. The fireplace is marriage. Let it outside the fireplace, it'll burn your house down. And we've got to acknowledge the fact that that is a gift that God gives us. It's a wonderful gift within the parameters he gave it to us. But we don't have to have that to live a fulfilled life. Now, I, I feel unbelief in the room right now. I'm telling you. I lived as, I, I, was, I was an immoral young man when I lived on the streets. I got saved. God told me, he said, you are not to date until you are perfectly satisfied without a woman in your life. Because otherwise you'll try to fulfill with a woman what only I can fill and I can't bless your idolatry. Now, as a 19-year-old kid, I knew that had to be Jesus. It wasn't the devil and it certainly wasn't me. I didn't even think like that. But some 40 years later almost, I still remember what God told me. He was saying, I want you to live single until you're perfectly satisfied without a wife, without a woman in your life. You know what happened? I got to the point I thought, I might, I might never get married, and that's okay. And you know what the Lord told me then? I don't want you dating at all. I'll bring you a wife. And he did. I met, I met Kathy in a yogurt shop. Yeah, hallelujah. Where do we land this? Let, let me, okay. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you guys, you young guys. This is especially true for the guys. Seriously, this is, this is worth the entry fee today, okay? Take notes. 1 Corinthians chapter seven, Paul says this. A single man is concerned with how he may please his wife. I mean, a married man is concerned with how he may please his wife. <laughs> a lot of single guys are too. But a married man, and a lot of married guys try to live single, but that's another sermon. A married man is concerned with how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. But a single man is concerned with how he may please the Lord. Catch that. So a married guy, he's got he's to please God, but he also has to please his wife. And that's not a bad thing. That's an obligation that I accepted when I said I do. But it, does, it is distracting. A single man doesn't have that burden to bear. His concern is to please the Lord. Now, you know, God could have made you any way he wanted. I used to think that my mom gave birth to my dad, raised him, and then had more kids. I just thought that's how it worked. And some of you ladies, I know you think, well, it kind of feels that way because, you know... You've seen that little meme going around. Uh, you know, of all the kids that I'm raising, the hardest one is my mother-in-law's. You know, I've seen that one. It, uh... But God didn't do it. He could have done it that way. He could have made them come out in couples. We could have been born adults. 
God in his omniscience. I don't know all of why he did it, but I know this. God is very intentional about what he did. And the principle of design requires that I pay attention to that and realize I'm, I, I, I'm tempted, but I'm not. It, uh, I came out of a woman. She raised me. We, okay, we, I'm going to... She raised me. And what I had a tendency to do is I went from my mom to girlfriend to another girlfriend to another girlfriend and another girlfriend. And I never grew up until I got saved and Jesus said, enough. You need some single years. You know the purpose of singleness? Single-minded devotion. You know what God was doing? He was finally cutting the umbilical cord. I had a mother figure and a great mom named Fails. She was a really good mom. She still is. But I went from that mom and my girlfriend, they were more, I was looking to be cared for. There was an emotional immaturity in me that I would satisfy through sexual immorality and through these dysfunctional relationships. One of the kids, my wife and I had seven kids. It grosses me out that still to this day. I mean, it's been 16 years since we, 17 years almost since we had one. But that little umbilical cord when you'd cut it, it's like gooey. And then finally it'd fall off. I've known people that wear it on a necklace. I'm like, yeah. I love my kids. I didn't love their umbilical cord, okay? See what happens. You're like, where is he going with this? Your umbilical cord, it needs to be, you put alcohol on it because it's easily infected until it falls off. There are a lot of guys that are walking around with an emotional umbilical cord and they're getting infected. They're looking for another mother figure. They came out of their mom, they returned to her breast and now they're looking for another figure, mother figure, someone to mother them. And all you ladies should be saying, amen. Your wife ain't your mama. (laughs) And so God in his omniscience gave us single years where we are disconnected emotionally, where we're not returning to mom and we're learning to parent our own heart. The Lord told me, he said, if you need her, you can't lead her. Because what I would do, I would lick my finger and try to figure out which way the winds of her desires are going. And I wasn't really leading her. I was being led by her. And any woman that gets in touch with who God's really made her to be doesn't want a man that just goes with every whim. The husband is to be the leader of the home and lay his life down for his wife. But he can't do that. What he does is he appeases her to manipulate her, and it causes a lot of problems. And so what did God do? He gives us single years of single-minded devotion until we say, Jesus, if it's just you and me from here on out, I'm good with that. I will live a fulfilled life. I just want you. And I used to tell the guys at Teen Challenge, hey, guys, there's two ways. Okay, I was talking to guys. Okay, ladies, if this, this offends you the way I say this, it was to guys. There's two ways to conquer a woman. As a child... And play off her maternal instincts. Or as a man. And state your intentions up front. And lead. 
And there's a lot of guys that the way they interact with women is playing off their maternal instincts. Before I met you, I didn't believe in myself. But now, oh, I believe in myself when you're around. You know, in other words, I feel like a big boy when you're here. And there's a woman doesn't want that. Now, okay, okay. I, I, there, hey, there's a set. That's true. If my wife, when my wife believes in me, it is wind in my sails. I'm seriously, if she's not with me, it makes it a whole lot harder to go along. But what I'm saying is, is <laughs> I see some of your faces. What I'm saying is, and we got to land this. <laughs> if you are, if, if you are okay with you and Jesus, like faith said, I thought, man, that is a beautiful thing. To say, you know what? I'll live a fulfilled life whether I ever get married or not. My, my happiness is not dependent upon some other human being. It's dependent on me and Jesus. Whatever he wants to give me and do with my life. And when you do that, all of a sudden, because you have this, then you qualify to have this. Okay? You become a person that you don't need her. You're able to serve her, not manipulate her. Your needs are met between you and Jesus. You be a man. <laughs> so with that, let's close. Let's pray. Okay. Let's go ahead and stand. Father, Lord, we, we thank you, God, for your word. We thank you that in spite of our rebellion, Lord, you've redeemed us. And Lord, that you've given us a book called your word into which we can anchor our emotions in our mind. You've given us fathers and mothers in the faith, even in this room. You've given us external reality to anchor our hearts in. Now, Lord, I'm asking God, as we go through this series, that you would open the eyes of our understanding. Help us to understand what's really going on around us. Help us to recognize it. And Lord, we ask that you'd expose any complicity in our own hearts, that we would repent, we would think differently and live differently and become the answer this world so desperately needs. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.